Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society podcast. Thanks for joining me today for a conversation with Yulia Frumer about her new book, Making Time, Astronomical Time Measurement in Tokugawa, Japan. This uh, came out with the University of Chicago Press in 2018. And even though the title of the book indicates that it focuses on astronomical time measurement, and a lot of the book does look at astronomers, the work that the book does is actually much more capacious. So it's a study of changing time measurement practices over the course of a few hundred years focusing on Japan and focusing on Tokugawa Japan in particular. But along the way, what the book is doing is offering ways to think about and practice the history of and with ideas, things, concepts, objects that have much broader significance beyond the history of Tokugawa Japan the history of timekeeping, or the history of clocks. So in the conversation to come, you'll hear us talking about a bunch of these larger methodological and historiographical issues of concern, and they include things like, you know, what is it that we're thinking about when we think about an hour? What is it to say that two things are the same? What is it to talk about and write histories of technology transfer, right? What is it to relate the hypothetical to the actual. So there are lots of broader conceptual issues that emerge from this study that I think are particularly fascinating and interesting to think with, but also you'll hear about automata. Um, you'll hear about some really fascinating objects and people along the way. So with that, I hope you enjoy the conversation and I hope you have a chance to take a look at the book. It's, um, it's a quite beautiful object that includes uh, as we don't talk about in the conversation to come, but I'll mention now, it includes some really great full-color images um, that illustrate uh, some of the objects that come up as central actors in the course of the chapters. So get your hands on a copy, have a good read, and have a good listen. And thanks, as ever, for your support of the channel. I'm here today to talk with Yulia Frumer about their new book, Making Time, Astronomical Time Measurement in Tokugawa, Japan. Welcome to the New Books in STS podcast, Yulia. Thanks for writing such a fascinating book, and thanks also for making time to talk with me about it today. It's great to have you on the podcast. And thank you for, for reading my book, and thank you for engaging with us. Of course. So, Yulia, let's start with the traditional question um, for the channel, at least for my hosting of the channel. What brought you to the study of Japan and why Tokugawa Japan in particular for your um, area of inquiry? Um, it's an interesting question, and I think that um, a lot of people have uh, very varied answers, that there are a lot of factors, a lot of components that go into this. Um, um, I would, you know, um, it would be easier for me to talk about how since my early age I dreamed about studying Japan, that, that that was not the case. Um, um, and and it's also, some of the factors are not very intellectual. As somebody who was born in the 70s and, and grew up in the 80s, uh, Japanese culture was something that was really present. So it was just interesting, it was exciting, and, and it's something that motivated me 
to study Japanese and Japanese culture in my undergraduate. But um, as I was uh, progressing in my studies and, and began my master's, I um, also realized that Japan, and especially Tokugawa Japan, is intellectually interesting for me because it allowed me to test my assumptions about things that I took for granted. Um, just the sheer difference of certain things, uh, certain phenomena, certain behaviors, certain events, um, made me realize that things that I assumed that they were natural, that uh, things just happened this way, but it didn't have to happen this way. Um, and uh, that realization was um, something that, that caused me just uh, to understand that I'm studying Japan because it's fun, but also it allows me to study myself and how I think about the world and what, is, what are my assumptions about the world. Um, and uh, Tokugawa Japan is distant both geographically and time-wise. Uh, modern-day Japan is interesting as Currently, I'm, I'm working in modern-day Japan, and yet, uh, because it's distant both geographically and uh, in terms of time period, Tokugawa Japan presented me with just numerous cases that allowed me to test this um, assumptions about how the world works, how humans work, how devices work. This is fascinating, and so much of, I think, what we're going to talk about in the hour to come really gets at this, right? I think more broadly, the book is really doing important work in terms of identifying at least one set of issues that many of us may take for granted, namely, what is time? What is an hour? And I'm really exploding that in a beautiful way. So we'll get to that um, certainly um, in a few moments. So for listeners who haven't had a chance to read the book, I'll just say a couple of things about it, um, and then we'll kind of move on. So the book itself looks at roughly 300 years of changes in ideas, in practices, and in technologies that were connected to time measurement in Japan. It charts, um, in the words of the book, a profound shift in attitude toward foreign technology between the 16th century, when European devices arrived in Japan, and 1873, when um, this was the era of a particularly important set of reforms when Japan abandoned its traditional temporal system. System, in the words of the book. Okay, so this is about time. It's about time measurement devices. It's about time technologies. Yulia, what brought you to a focus on this particular topic? Um, I think that was one of the cases with this realization of suddenly that things do not have to be the way that I think that they're just naturally happening. And um, um, I first heard about um, the, this really interesting time system that was used in Tokugawa period Japan when I was still in my undergraduate. And, and that blew my mind. The idea that one could live life with hours that change the length, that was just so, that was inconceivable. How do you do that? You cannot trust hours, that this is one of the stable things in, in our reality. And, um, and it was just all these questions of, of how it is even possible of thinking about interacting with people when, when hours just keep changing their length. And, and then on top of that, there was this sense of this, the, the fact that there were clocks, there were mechanical clocks, that they're extremely beautiful, just all this brass and, and this, this just fantastic. But these clocks were adapted to measure this time 
in units that were not equal. And that's a conundrum for me uh, uh, to, to think about. So how would you live life <clears throat> under the regime of ours that change the length? And how do you make devices that measure this time? So while we're actually on the topic, Yulia, um, since it's come up, this is something that you talk about at length in chapter one, but just to kind of gesture there um, for listeners who were like, what, what do you mean ours are not the same length? Like, what is she talking about? Um, You're invoking early in the conversation, the idea of variable hours. Can you sort of briefly just say a little bit about what those are um, in Tokugawa Japan for listeners who might be like, what do you mean hours aren't the same? Like, um, so the system, and and it's a. Uh, I, I should also say that uh, this system of time, I later discovered um, that um, it wasn't unique to Japan. Uh, it actually was used in China. It was in, used in Europe, uh, but it was gradually abandoned um, around well, in China probably around 10th, 11th century, and, and then in Europe, and uh, 13th, 14th century. Um, and in this system, the day is divided into twelve hours, we will call them hours, uh, 12 units. Six belong to darkness and six of light. And because the amount of light and darkness changes throughout the year, the seasons, then relative amount of time that passes within either six hours of darkness or six hours of light changes as well. So it really depends on, on, on when is dawn and sunset. Mm-hmm. Uh, within the time of uh, time period of darkness or light, the hours are equal. But in between them, they they change with seasons. So, for example, in winter, you will have quite long nighttime hours, but relatively shorter daytime hours. And in the summer, you will have really, really, really long daytime hours, but the nighttime hours will be quite short. And only about equinoxes, the hours are kind of equal, but actually even even then, not entirely so. Cool. Thank you so much. And we'll get back to this um, notion in a few moments um, and the kind of consequences of this notion, both for material culture that we're talking about, but also um, for how we understand technology, history and technology transfer um, more globally. But before we get to that, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the transformation between dissertation and book. So the project began um, as a dissertation, as I understand it, Yulia? Yes. Um, and we're talking about um, the monograph that resulted ultimately from that research. Were there any major or significant, even if they weren't major, transformations along the way in terms of either the, the shape and the scope of the project and or the way that you were conceptualizing it? Um, I think that there, there were quite a lot of changes, um, um, both that, um, in terms of just writing. I I rewrote quite a lot of it, uh, even if it was the same material, that there were quite a lot of rewriting done. Um, I added the chapter, the whole uh, chapter six um, on Endo Takanori. Um, I, um, th- this was completely new. And, um, and, and another thing that, uh, oh, and of course, I had to cut out a lot of materials. And that's, I, I know that it always happens, uh, just when you do research and, and for dissertation, there's just so many interesting things and you know, just want to put everything 
in writing. But then eventually you need to decide well, what are the things that they contribute to your argument and what are things that they may be interesting but not necessarily belong in this book. And I had to cut, cut, cut these things out. But one of the, I think, a transformative um, things about framing, uh, framing the, the, the concept of the book mm-hmm. was uh, came when I talked to a friend and I talked about my project and the friend said something about the time with a capital T. And, um, and, it, and it really only then hit me uh, that we are so used to this idea that time is with a capital T, that something that exists there, um, that it's a given. And it, it was not given in Tokugawa, Japan. Uh, and especially um, before 1830s, 1840s, people were really, really comfortable with having several kind of times. Even astronomers who were dealing with Western time measurement, uh, everybody was comfortable with having different systems. Uh, but that was no longer true in with the transformation to the modern time uh, in the major period, or at least among people who initiated the reform. And this is something that I emphasize as much, much stronger in the book that was not as emphasized in the dissertation. Great. Thank you so much. So now let's dive right in. And we're going to dive in by starting it in the introduction. One of the larger contributions of the book is that it offers, in the words of the book, a fresh interpretation of the ways that societies evaluate and attach meanings to technologies. So in other words, this is a book that focuses, at least in my, um, from my perspective, right, it focuses on a very particular case to make some larger contributions to how we think about, write about, and and work with um, some larger historiographical issues. And history of technology is one of those larger issues. So the book shows how the conceptualization of timepieces in Japan transformed and evolved as a result of transformations in the broader range of associations related to the measurement of time. And again, this is in the words of the book, uh, the broader range of associations related to the measurement of time. I'm emphasizing the word associations here because that winds up being really important in a way that listeners might not otherwise um, realize. So again, in the words of the book, in order to adapt foreign timekeeping technology to their needs, Japanese users first needed to integrate it into their web of associations related to practices of time measurement. And so they did this either by modifying the tech to better suit those associations or by changing the associations to fit the tech. So in other words, the broader claim here is that the assessment of technology is tied to the broader associations that it invokes. Okay, so Yulia, can you talk a little bit about the significance of this argument? What is this arguing against or what kind of historiographical trends or arguments is this usefully changing or complicating and why is it important? Um, from your perspective to change or complicate those arguments in this way? Um, I think that there are implications for um, both the kind of conceptual world that we are dealing with, um, the world of abstract concepts such as time, um, and also to the very, very material level of uh, technology, and in fact, something that can bridge 
the relationship between the intellectual world and the material world that we are immersed in. Uh, and in the case of technology, uh, we in technology of science, we spend a lot of times thinking about the needs of users um, and the relationship between the ways that somebody who designed an instrument thought that this instrument would be used and how when users, uh, they, they take it and suddenly they re realize that they have different needs and they need something to do something different with the device. So the word, the term needs is, is very, very essential for, for understanding how users interact with technology. And yet, for me, what I discovered was that need is much more complicated than some practical activity. And uh, we can talk, for example, with uh, clocks, we can talk about the need to measure time. But when I looked at my sources, when I looked in the way that people talked about um, their time measurement practices, and also in the ways that the Japanese uh, clockmakers modified a mechanical uh, clockwork mechanism, I realized that the need also includes a broader um, situational feeling, even we can talk about feelings. So, so the need is not only for time, for a timepiece to measure time, uh, the needed is for a timepiece to measure time in a way that feels comfortable for users. And this feels comfortable, feels familiar. Uh, that's part of how um, this world of association that is now tied to a new timepiece uh, is working for the user. So this is really interesting, um, and this relates to what I wanted to ask you about next, which is the way that the book also is contributing to, is changing how we think about the relationship between Europe and Tokugawa Japan, right? Um, so what you just said um, is very much emphasizing, at least for me and how I'm hearing it, the importance of feeling, of comfort, of familiarity. This is not a story about the appropriation of a technology all along the, the path of appropriation as a result of the desire to appropriate things that come with a particular foreign cultural context. We're going to see how um, once we get into the mid-19th century, the adoption of certain kinds of technologies is going to be about the adoption of the associations that it evokes. And this is about a certain idea of enlightenment. This is about other kinds of cultural ideas. But for most of the story, it's not about that. And the book argues that this case study offers a rare opportunity to look at in detail how foreign technology was interpreted in the absence of knowledge of its original cultural context. So yes. can you talk a little bit about that and its importance to you, Yulia? Um, the, the, the interesting case um, here um, is um, historically uh, when clocks are imported to Japan, and uh, very, very soon after, the Europeans are banished from Japan. So there is not as much interaction. Um, there is some heritage of interaction with Europeans from the 16th century. But very, very soon, um, <clears throat> there is not much knowledge about how were European devices used in, in Europe. And uh, 
what kind of work were these devices doing for people in Europe? And um, and and clockmakers in Japan are left alone to try to come up with ways of how to adapt this foreign uh, mechanism that was kind of um, nonsensical to them because it didn't measure time properly from their perspective. Um, they were left alone to think about the ways of what to do with, with, with this material that they have in hand. Mm-hmm. And the, the possibilities, um, the kind of the things that they, they came up with, they're really, really creative. And that shows that the, the designs that they came up with, they point out that time measurement is really not just about practicalities. It's not the fact that Western technology was better in some sense. In fact, European clocks, and especially those in the 16th century, they could hardly be taught as much better in terms of being punctual. But the better for people is how well it suits into their understanding how time works and how the measurement of time works. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you so much. So as we move into the book, right, we're going to see this set of arguments developed. We also see a number of other historiographical arguments um, proposed and developed. And we've talked about some of those already in the conversation so far. So chapter one chronicles the development of timekeeping practices across the Tokugawa period, and it makes a number of historiographical arguments, some of which we've already talked a little bit about. It begins asking the question, what is an hour? right? Um, Which seems really simple. We've already talked about the fact that um, the seeming simpleness of this is actually um, uh, hiding a very, very complex history. And this chapter introduces the idea of variable hours, which you've already really helpfully talked about for us. Now, the chapter importantly challenges a common characterization of variable hours as more, quote, natural, right? It's a more natural system. This is important from my perspective for a number of reasons um, that push back at some prevailing tendencies that characterize the history of science, technology, and medicine globally and characterize the way we talk about the relationship between local practices, for example, in what we call Europe and what we do not call Europe. But for you, Yulia, why and how is it significant to push back against an argument or an assumption that these variable hours in Japan are more natural? Um, I think a part of it, and, and this is something that, and that obviously was not in the book, uh, is my interaction with uh, with my colleagues, mm-hmm. some of my colleagues, when talking about my research, and um, and especially people who do not deal with uh, with Japanese history, uh, um, historians of science and technology in Europe, focus on Europe. Uh, when I was telling them about the system of hours in the period, oftentimes uh, I the response was well, maybe they just didn't need to measure time. Maybe they just lived the kind of life that they were agrarian and they just didn't need to do so. And that is absolutely not true. They um, they really measured time a lot and they needed uh, time measurement for a variety of um, bureaucratic reasons. And it was a highly bureaucratic society even, even in 16th, 17th century. And... Um, 
And, and, and there is a particular moment when that people latch onto when they talk about the naturalness, the supposedly naturalness of, of variable hours, and that is that the day begins with the dawn. That, that the definition, the length of hours is dependent on when is the dawn. And that is decided by something that occurs in nature, that's seasons. It's not a man-made construct, supposedly. It's something that, that happens, that we can all see that it changes throughout the year. But here's the, here's the, the interesting point, and is that dawn is not a natural point that exists in nature. Um, it, it gets bright long, long time before sunrise, and uh, we modern people, oftentimes we don't get up early enough to actually witness this, <laughs> but, but it does, and, and life begins, and activity begins before sunrise. Uh, even, even if we took sunrise as a starting point for the day, still there would be complications about how do you define sunrise. But uh, in fact, we don't even go by sunrise. We go by when it starts to be bright enough to have activities. Mm -hmm. And that's a long process. And there is nothing uh, natural that could be used in order to, to, to define it. And this is where human decision comes a society needs to come together and agree that this is the point that we all decide that that would be the beginning of the day. And that's there's another point that we all decided that would be the end of the day, where there's a similar process, a gradual process. Um, and, and in Japan, there were bureaucratic mechanisms that um, government employed astronomers to calculate this and to create calendars and to distribute this. And that, but once we understand this, that there is a whole government apparatus involved into determining this point that maybe we perceive as natural, that point was not natural at all. That was, a, in fact, a, a kind of, a, from the point of view of people who live in Tabula Japan, that was a very, very sign of civilization that the society can come together and make the system to decide how do we manage, manage our time. Awesome. Um, and more generally, the book really does argue um, for understanding time and its histories in terms of human-made conventions, right? It argues that, again, in the words of the book, before the 19th century, time measurement was understood to be a human-made convention. And it also argues and shows, I think, very compellingly, even in this first chapter, that several different modes of measuring time coexisted and could be used for different purposes. Now, interestingly, sometimes it was exactly the factors that might seem now to be incompatible with like modern um, life and lifestyles that, as you show here, um, encouraged and enabled the sorts of timekeeping that we now tend to associate with modernity, like um, synchron like synchronicity, right? Synchronization yeah, yeah. Um, and this, the kinds of awareness of and practices of time that go with that. So this is really interesting. And early in the book, um, you give us a lot of examples of some of these different timekeeping devices, and we won't have time to talk about them in detail, but I just want to mention them for listeners. They include time bells with their auditory signals. They include incense clocks um, and other kinds of mechanical clocks. So what a clock is even in this book, just like what an hour is, is opened up. What a clock is, is also opened up really productively. So as we get to chapter two, um, and we could talk for another three hours about chapter one, right? There's a lot more going on in chapter one, but chapter two is making a really interesting 
set of points, set of arguments, I think, about material culture and objects and thinginess and how we pay attention to them in history and how others have paid attention to them in history as well. This chapter focuses on Japanese clockmakers' modifications to European devices in order to measure variable hours. So the chapter is really concerned with the thinginess of clocks. Um, This manifests in a couple of ways. One of the ways this manifests is by looking at Japanese clockmakers' own interpretations of the thinginess of European clocks. And you show here, I think compellingly, that they experienced European clocks' thinginess according to their own existing associations with time measurement. And we've talked a little bit about this um, notion of associations and its significance. But the chapter also manifests um, its interest in materiality in terms of how you are using these clocks as historical sources. So, Yulia, um, what were kind of materially some of the most interesting kinds of clocks for you to work with? And can you talk a little bit about um, your own sense of the importance of these um, objects as a kind of historical document? Um. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the clocks are wonderful. They're, they are really, really beautiful. And um, um, there are there's a tendency today to see these clocks as uh, objects of art because those that survived uh, were really more, most of them are more expensive that people were reluctant to throw away. But, uh, but, but in fact, these were much more common than just the rich and, and the, the important daimyos. Um, but... Um, the interesting thing about them, and they're all really, really beautiful, is that even though that Japanese clockmakers had this mechanism and they needed to adapt it to make it measure time in variable hours. So there is this need. So obviously, the modification was, was inspired by the need to make them measure time properly in Japanese terms. But the ways that clockmakers came up with ideas of how to modify were really, really different. So they came up with designs that they were really didn't look like each other and didn't, some of them didn't look like European clocks at all. So for me, the interesting part is to identify not only how they were, why they were measuring time at variable hours, but how. And it seemed that for clockmakers, when I look at the, at the structure and the design of the clock, for clockmakers, it was not just a matter of making time, making clocks measure time in variable hours, but to make clock measure time in this matter similar to some non-mechanical timekeepers. And I look at the way time moves on timekeeper, at the way that digits are distributed on timekeepers, um, at the kind of practices that one needed to engage with this, with a timekeeper, the, the modified timekeeper, to try to see what are the similarities to other practices that people had with non-mechanical clocks. And one example, um, the distribution of digits on a dial. We used to think of uh, 12 o'clock, midnight and midday, as something that is on top of the dial. But in Japanese uh, clocks, the hour of rad, which is would be corresponding to mid- midnight, that was placed at the bottom. That's curious. So I would ask why? Why did they place the hour of rad at the bottom and not at the top? Why did they need to do to make this modification? And the reason is that I 
here there's a convention of actually compass um, direction, geographical directions, and map making, and a really, really long history that starts in China, where the north that is associated with, with the winter and also with the midnight hour is end with this little rat, with this digit rat. The north is always placed at the bottom. And if we look at a lot of Chinese maps, look at a lot of Japanese maps, uh, and especially before the 18th century, we see that the map is drawing that the north is at the bottom of the page. So this orientation, north-south orientation, is then superimposed on the dial of the clock where digits are associated with, with directions, with cardinal directions. Another uh, great example that I really, really like is this interesting clock that is it's just a stick. It's vertical. And time doesn't move circularly on, on this dial, but rather it just goes top-bottom. And, and again, um, then I would ask, why, why would you arrange this in such a way? Um, and the idea of time that moves circularly, it, it sounds very really natural to us um, because we see it on clocks and, on, um, and the movement of shadows. <clears throat> but for Japanese clockmakers, uh, one of the practices that they had to engage is also with uh, water clocks, uh, sorry, not water clocks, with namans, with uh, sundials. And um, when you have uh, a naman, the sundial, and the shadow, even though that the shadow moves uh, around it, uh, the shadow of the tree or the shadow of, 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 uh, um, of naman itself, the, the measurement stick on it, when we have the measures, uh, we see the shadow moves up and down this uh, measurement rod itself. So the clockmakers, Japanese clockmakers in the Tokugawa period, were trying to replicate this movement of the shadow on measurement rod underneath the naman on the uh, on the mechanically uh, positioned, and mechanically operated clock that they made up, and they called it a measurement rod clock, a shadow clock. Mm-hmm. So one of the ways that this is actually really, really interesting is the way in which it's related to one of the other points that you're making um, in this chapter, right? So you ask um, or you make a point in this chapter that this understanding this period in the history of clocks and clockmakers in Japan can usefully complicate or change how we understand technology and knowledge transfer. And one of the reasons why is that I think as you show here and you raise this as a um, kind of provocative question at the end of this chapter, how a single thing is understood in different contexts maybe or perhaps makes it into another kind of thing, right? And you ask, is it the same tech when it moves, right? So in what sense? So basically this raises the question, what is it to be the same? Which for me poses really interesting methodological questions around what it is we're doing as historians when we take this thing, right? And we are then interacting with it. To what extent are we interacting with the document or the object or whatever it is that we're using to try to get a sense of another time and place as the same thing as it was in the other time and place? Do you see what I mean? So it's like, 
I don't think there's an answer to that, but I think it's a really important and really productive question to think with. So I just wanted to raise that to thank you for posing that question at the end of this chapter, because I think we, we tend to not think enough about what it is to be the same. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's this really, really important methodologically as well as historically. So as we move to the next chapter, we move to a chapter that looks specifically at the timekeeping practices of Tokugawa astronomers. Now, this chapter shows the ways in which changing mathematical methods produced new sets of associations that were relevant to the measurement of time, and thus were really crucial for this history. In the 18th century, we see this change beginning in a narrow circle of astronomers who began seeing time as a reflection of celestial motion, and then we see this expanding out of this circle of astronomers. So, Yulia, why astronomers? Um, For you and for this study, um, especially for listeners who may not be familiar with this context, what makes astronomers so important um, and so helpful for understanding the history of time in Tokugawa, Japan? Um, So I I would like to preface um, Mm -hmm. my answer with uh, going a little bit back uh, to the first chapter. And um, the reason that I bring astronomers into the picture uh, is first thinking in terms of how Tobogawa society functioned with this variable hours and with this wonderful set of clocks and other non-mechanical timekeepers. And, and one of the things that I, I, I really stress in chapter one is that the system worked. It worked wonderfully. And, and it worked throughout the changes that happened in the Tokugawa period. Um, obviously, things were really, really different in early 17th century and mid-19th century. But even as Japan became more and more industrialized and had operations and mines and huge cities and multi-million megapolis uh, um, of, of Edo, uh, that system satisfied the, the needs of the people, the bureaucratic needs, the work needs, the, um, the communication needs, that worked. So why abandon this? Why change? So there was change somewhere but not in the actually in the labor dynamic, in the in the measurement dynamic of, of bureaucratic needs, there was change somewhere. And I identified this change, first of all, in astronomers' practices. And astronomers are important because they are the people who interacted with time the most during that period. Uh, they were the ones who needed to design calendars. So they needed time measurement as a part of their practice, because that's how that's that's one of the data that they gather in, in order to calculate celestial motion, uh, they measure it in time. On the other hand, they are also produce time because they are the ones who make calendars. So they tell people how to measure time and how to divide their days into day hours and, t- and night hours. And astronomers are oftentimes have this a little bit of a bad rap of being detached from from society, especially because they sit in their towers and their observations and they're somewhere high above and they look at the skies and they don't go below. But that's that that is that is a misleading impression. Uh, these people are very much enmeshed in 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 the in the living uh, breathing society and they're, they're part of this. And with their understanding of time differently, they also created, they had an output 
where they had different ideas about how their output is going to look like. So we, they were in a position to actually make change happen. Excellent. Thank you so much. So for listeners who are particularly interested in the details of what you were just describing, chapter three offers lots of them. Um, And so I'll just very, very briefly mention, um, just in terms of understanding the overall arc, um, pun intended, of this story. (laughs) I don't have time to talk in detail about it, but just to give a sense of what's in the chapter. So the astronomers that you're looking at begin timing segments of paths traversed by celestial bodies, and they begin drawing diagrams in which measured time stood for arcs describing moving planets. So they begin seeing time and depicting time in various material forms in terms of arcs and angles rather than as sequences of temporal points. And this becomes really important, right? Um, You show here how their practices gradually came to include more European elements, including trigonometry, including calculation using diagrams, maps and sextants and pendulums, and their associations changed as well. And this chapter um, takes us into the ways in which their timepieces changed as a result and the importance of those changes. Now, one of the ways in which these became these changes and these associations became really important is the way in which they were manifest, not just in timepieces, but also in terms of mapping, mapping of not just the land, but also efforts to map the seas. And this was really formed for shaping the story that unfolds um, in the second part of the book. So the fourth chapter looks in particular at the ways that astronomers' new approaches made their way into geography and also surveying and eventually manifested in a new map format. So Yulia, there's so much that we could talk about here, right? This chapter is really extraordinarily rich. Um, It's one of a couple of chapters that focus on a particular figure to take us into the kind of texture of, um, and the details of very particular cases within this case. For you, what is perhaps most interesting um, about the story of the way these um, uh, these timepieces and the, this work by the astronomers manifest in terms of cartography, right? And is there anything about that that you're particularly excited about, right? So put another way, but more succinctly, what do you think is most interesting about the way that these time measurement practices manifest in mapping and cartography specifically? I think that one of the things that um, was exciting for me when I was doing this research uh, is noticing how my actors themselves, they didn't know what kind of changes they're bringing. And, and, and it, it, it seems almost accidental. There are so many places that they were almost accidental. Uh, the whole cartography, and, and there were changes in Japanese cartography already that taking place um, uh, that were... Um, both in terms of expanding the areas of mapping and and modifying um, um, different means and techniques of mapping, but but here this particular project, it all began with just a, a really esoteric kind of problem that the head astronomer um, Takahashi Hitoki was facing, and that that is like that just his calculation didn't make sense. There was some kind of mistake, and he needed to identify the mistake. He looked at the some Western books, he couldn't read Dutch, but he could read tables. And in these tables, um, it looked like they were suggesting that um, that the length of degrees changed 
as you move from equator to the North Pole. And, and he operated on the assumption that, that the Earth was a sphere, that the whole, the whole calculation, trigonometrical calculations, all this like, spherical geometry that you build in, in this calculation is based on the fact that we assume that the Earth is a sphere. But here, there was this information that is coming, and, um, and it, it was weird. In, in a Western book that he read, not only that it seemed that, that the length of one degree of meridian changes as we go from uh, equator to North Pole, but it's also the Western book made it present as if there was a bulge around the equator. And that completely did not make any sense to uh, Takahashi to, uh, to Ishitoke. And he sent his student, Ino Tadataka, to measure the length of one degree of meridian on the ground and to see, okay, we need, we find a need to find out the value and to know what's going to happen. So that began the whole project that then just started unfolding. And because this was basically astronomical conundrum, um, as Ino Tadataka was taking measurements, terrestrial um, measurements, and, and doing surveying as surveyors and at his time did as well. He was also establishing, going and establishing this observation stations every couple of days where they would stay and at night and doing celestial observations. And that's where a lot of changes occur because of this practice of measuring time and carrying this really, really heavy and kind of convoluted pendulum clock and, and setting it every day uh, well, every time that we need to, 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 to make an observation station, that is all a product of this tiny, weird conundrum that his teacher had. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And it's super, super helpful too. And some of what you just mentioned um, comes up importantly, and I think is an important part of the nature of the argument that you're putting forth in the next chapter. Um, But first, I just want to kind of signal for listeners, part of what's happening in uh, chapter four, this chapter on cartography and geography, is that you're showing um, in interesting ways the ways in which maps that are published based on these measurements you described revolutionize the perception of Japan's space, right? And elsewhere in the book, we also see how some of these um, some of these scholars, some of these astronomers, some of the um, people that you're looking at are dealing with issues of geography and cartography as well when they're using or working from Chinese texts, which have an assumption of a kind of space centered on Beijing, and they're interested in um, thinking with Japanese space, right? So the conce- yeah. so the kind of conceptions of space, the way this manifests as also a history of the way space is conceptualized is also part of this story about time. Absolutely. And time and space are so uh, inherently interlinked um, in, in the way that we conceptualize them, but also the way that we use them. Um, and particularly in cartography, that's, that's a very, very important, um, um, important aspect because space is measured in time. Time is oftentimes as a proxy to, to a measurement of space. Um, and, um, and, and, and here, uh, it also has a, a political and ideological significance when uh, once everything is tied by by the way of comparing time measurements uh, between all the different places in Japan that the surveyors were taking, by comparing to 
central space, uh, which then it wasn't the observatory in Edo, it was Kyoto. It created the sense that all the different places in Japan, by the way of measurement, were then tied to Kyoto, which is the, the heart of Japan, the center of Japan. And once there was a map where all the coordinates are placed uh, along the grid of longitudes and, and, and latitudes that are now centered of Kyoto, they put the prime meridian to run through Kyoto. Mm. Then the whole Japan becomes centered on this on this city that is considered to be the, the, the cultural heart of Japan. Absolutely. And we could also tell um, a story about, um, and if we had another three hours, I would love to talk about this And because I know you're the right person to talk um, to about this, but we could also tell a story about how now we tend to treat time, our, our time as a kind of space, right? I mean, with like iCal programs, we map time, we yes. occupy time, we treat it as a kind of uh, colonial almost or imperial resource um, to be occupied. Um, and that's a whole other story. So time and space, um, that's a conversation that, that I think will be ongoing after this podcast between you and I, and I'm going to remind you of this next time I see you. Um, but also one of the things that you mentioned offhand and talking about just the physicality, the heaviness of these clocks that are um, carted around becomes really important in the story that chapter five tells. And we, again, we won't have time to talk about this in detail, but chapter five tells a story about, among other things, the way in which this engagement with time and land space manifests in an effort to understand um, sea space, right? Um, so the, there's a really interesting story here about the way that the need for astronomical data led Tokugawa astronomers to use British nautical almanacs and the kind of consequences of efforts to translate land methods to the sea. And that has to do, among other things, with the challenges of using the kinds of clocks that you could count on, relatively speaking, to be stable on land. You can't count on that kind of stability on the sea. And that has all kinds of implications that wind up resulting in a very different attitude toward Western clocks to nautical almanacs that's going to play out in the next few chapters. So, but I can't in good conscience, not ask you about something that comes up in chapter seven. So we're going to skip over chapter okay. six, okay. time measurement on the ground, because I have to ask you about automata. And I have to make yes. sure that we have time to do this. Okay, so once we get through chapter five and the story that I just described, um, and then chapter six, which also looks at um, and focuses on the work of another individual whose work, as you show, exemplifies the reach of astronomers changing conceptualization of time measurement and looks at the ways, among other things, that different kinds of timepieces measure different kinds of time gives us a really cool story about a Russian clock. Um, so that's all in chapter six, but then we get to chapter seven. Okay, chapter seven focuses on the dissemination of ideas about time measurement by clockmakers. So clockmakers in this case served as go-betweens. They were the ones who explained to the public the principles on which Western clocks and watches were based. They were the ones adjusting the gears of European mechanisms to work in a different mode. They were the first to understand how to translate between the European conventions of timekeeping and the Japanese conventions of timekeeping. And they published treatises and guides to teach their readers about European clocks. So this is a really interesting chapter about them. Part of this chapter looks at the importance of automata 
to this story. And I feel like I need to ask you about this, Yulia. Um, So what are automata um, for listeners who are like, what is that word? Um, And why do they become important to this history of time and timekeeping? Well, automata are are robots. (laughs) Um, These are uh, dolls, mechanical dolls that uh, they move with... um, with internal mechanism and uh, some of them write, some of them shoot an arrow from a bow, um, others climb stairs, um, sing, uh, perform what we would perceive as human activities. Mm-hmm. And um, humans were fascinating with trying to recreate humans uh, by different means um, throughout the history that we we know it from ancient times in Greece and in China. Uh, And um, in early modern period, and that is true both in Japan and and, uh, and in Europe, there was a really, really close connection between automata makers and clock makers because automata are operating on a clockwork mechanism. And the kind of skills that masters needed in order to actually make these mechanical dolls work and, and create impression that, that they move in a human-like manner, these were skills that required a very, very um, a master of, of clockmaking. So they needed somebody who didn't just know how to build clocks, but who knew how to build exceptionally good clocks. And these were clockmakers that worked with astronomers. And a lot of clockmakers, a lot of automata makers that I mentioned in these chapters, at a certain point in their life, they also made astronomical measurement instruments. Um, and, and oftentimes they acquired new skills by making um, astronomical um, uh, instruments, but oftentimes they also, by learning how to make dolls move in a human-like manner, they honed the skills of clockmaking. Uh, of making clocks that they're very, very precise and they're able to keep time for a long period of time, like Tanaka Hisashige, uh, the famous clockmaker that, that I mentioned in the chapter, who, who built this fabulous, uh, what they call the forever clock, the 10,000-year clock, um, that, that um, displayed different dials, that they manifested different kind of times, but all of them, he made it so masterful that all of these dials were connected to just one single mechanism uh, that was operating the clock and the kind of like um, um, model of astronomical motion that was positioned on top. And that's the, the device that is featured on the cover of my book. So, so, so automata makers are, are important because the skills that are required in making automata and the skills that are required in making really, really precise clocks of really, really the same skills. So cool. I love this. Um, and also this is, I think, an example, uh, depending on how we look at the significance of these automata makers and their kind of contributions to the story, it's an example of, I think, a larger point that the book makes elsewhere, not just in this chapter, of the significance of thinking thinking with and thinking about the relation between um, the imagined and the real, right? And so it's this is an example, I think, of a larger phenomenon in which you're showing us and you're asking us to think 
um, elsewhere in the book about the relationship between um, the hypothetical thought experiments, the imagination, and actual life. Um, and I think this is a maybe not obviously, but it's a manifestation of the way in which the creation of this sort of imagined being, right, this automata, is very much rooted in a history of how we get to notions of actual time, right, and like what that means to us experientially and, and, and historically. So I just I just want to also put a pitch in to the conversation for the attention that you're placing on the real effects of imagination and hypothesis and thought experiments in the book. And so I just love that the imagination and the real and their relationship. So, but by chapter eight, right, we're almost now at the conclusion of our conversation and we are almost at the conclusion of the book. By chapter eight, we finally get to these reforms that I mentioned right at the beginning of the conversation. These are 1873 reforms where the Japanese government decides to convert the whole country to Western style timekeeping. So as a way to kind of wrap up the this part of the book, um, this part of the conversation, Yulia, can you say a little bit about these reforms and their significance for listeners? Um, you you make a point here that this is ultimately about the associations that the old and new systems of timekeeping evoked, and that's where this transition came from. So, um, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, absolutely, um, the reforms the reforms came just a couple of years into a major period, and um, and it, it is very, very tempting for us to to assume that the, the reforms were needed because there were new things going on. There was new technologies. There were factories. There were telegraphs. There were railroads. Um, and um, the intellectuals like Fukuzawa Ikichi, uh, who promoted the reform, they made it seem as this is the, the big new thing that we need in order to be civilized in Western country. But in fact, when, when we look at this, uh, when the reforms came out, the, the material transformations of railroads and telegraphs, they were just beginning. They were not much difficult, different from what was in the end of the Tokugawa period. And what's more important is that the discussions about the necessity of reform, they began much, much earlier. And we see that even in the end of the 18th century, so it couldn't have been that the reform was motivated by the change changes in, in major period. Rather, it was a broader thought of what kind of calendar we need, what kind of time measurement we need, and what is what what do we think that we're doing by measuring time? And what we see uh, from the late 18th century and throughout the first half of the 19th century are a lot of intellectuals, a lot of them studying astronomy or interacting with astronomers, uh, sending letters, who say that astronomers need to be our models because astronomers are rational, they're mathematical, and yes, they employ Western time. And um, they start talking about local practices, uh, practices of divination, with a lot of disdain, and they say, we don't want that. Uh, that is that is not how rational people need to do. We want a rational utilitarian government that utilizes sciences, astronomy, geography, and navigation in order to create a better society. And and reform in ours is kind of a victim of, of this larger reform in calendrical system, the abandonment of the lunisolar solar 
calendar of uh, um, that, that takes into account both the movement of uh, the sun and the moon, disposing it all in favor of the Gregorian calendar, and also the hours. And the hours are get abandoned by associations because they 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 remind people because the use of uh, of the animal, the zodiac animal signs, uh, of all these practices that they now think of like something that is backward. Um, and there are not the kind of time that astronomers use, that now astronomers become the model for the whole society. And that's an interesting point because prior to, let's say, 1810s, 1820s, astronomers themselves didn't think that they're the mode of time that they're measuring, that there was something special about this. They themselves, they, they had several systems that they kind of juggled in between. And when they went home, they did something else. And that was fine. They thought that they would just adjust whatever system fits best, the kind of time measurement that they needed to the situation. That was plain. However, in 1830s and 40s, when they see this changing of discourse, suddenly astronomers have only one kind of time that they're using, and that's the Western time. And the people who learn from them, the intellectual who see them as a model, they now say that this time that is part of the astronomical system, the fact that it's no longer related to human practices, but it is, is measured by the, the, the celestial motion, by the movement of the Earth around the sun, that is the real time. That is the time. And we associate this with the progress, rationality, astronomy, mathematics, everything that now we think that civil society needs to have. Awesome. Yulia, you've done such an amazing job opening up this book for us. And the book is so rich and there's so much in there. And I just want to thank you for everything that you've done in the course of this conversation and in the book. Um, now, the, we're now at the conclusion of our conversation and there's so much more that we could be talking about. But in the absence of time um, to do that, you know, as fully as I would love, is there anything in particular that you'd like to mention that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but you think might be important for listeners to know? Absolutely. Um, as we were talking, I, um, especially about chapter three that talks about transformation in the ways that astronomers talk and measure time. Um, one of the important things that I wanted to stress is that this is not a simple story of transition of Western science to Japan. Uh, and that story has been told a lot of, of, of adoption of Western practices, adoption of Western instruments. Um, but here, I, I want to emphasize that even though that in the end, Japanese astronomers did take a lot from Western science that came via China, the very reason that they became interested in Western astronomy was their engagement with ancient Chinese text. When they were exposed to some kind of popular astronomy in the 17th century, several of Japanese astronomers said, well, that, that sounds nice, the way that we talk, but there's no mathematics. Like, I mean, that, that makes sense, but, but I cannot do anything with this because there's no data. But in Chinese text, there's data. And because in Chinese text there were some... Um, problem-solving methods that then Nathan Stephen calls them kind of proto-trigonometry, then 
Japanese astronomers said, we heard that in China, there are now mathematicians that they deal with this problem and they help us solve it mathematically. And through this mathematical conundrums of some kind of methods that they were going towards trigonometry, they became interested in Western astronomy in general. And then another interesting point towards the end of the 18th century is that um, because Japanese astronomers were learning astronomy, Western astronomy from the Chinese Jesuits, basically, uh, the kind of system that they first learned was a, a Tychonian hybrid, uh, which was not heliocentric, but um, a kind of a system in which all the planets rotate around the sun, but sun rotates around the earth. And um, in Western history, um, a lot was taught, the famous Thomas Kuhn book talks about how important this scientific revolution of changing perspective from geocentrism to heliocentrism, how important that was for science and for development of Western culture. But this is not what happened in Japan. In Japan, after astronomers engaged with the Iconian model, which was not heliocentric, uh, at certain point, and towards the end of 18th century, they received more books that did talk and did present uh, the movement of the planet as heliocentric. And they said, oh yeah, that makes sense. It was not big revolution. There wasn't a huge change of minds. They just accepted this as natural. That was not something traumatic that they experienced. What was really, really important, what was revolutionary, was Kepler's law, especially laws that, that state that the movement of planets is um, at their orbits are not spherical but, but elliptic. That caused a major break in the way that calculations were made. So, so I guess what I wanted to emphasize in these two stories, that the first encounter and the continuous encounter with Western astronomy, that it's not about immediate assumption that Western astronomy was better because it was not better all the time. And it's not about the transformation from geocentric viewing of, of the Earth to heliocentric. It was more about the actual mathematical calculation methods that astronomers found reasonable or not reasonable. Awesome. Thank you so much. And now, Yulia, that the book is out, um, what is next for you? What are you currently working on? I am currently working on the history, the long history of Japanese humanoid robots uh, that began with that very automata that we talked a little bit uh, a couple of minutes ago. Uh, and it may seem like a, like a real departure from what I was doing in, in this book that we're discussing now, because um, even though that the humanoid robots, the history does begin even before 19th century, and I do spend some time in the 19th century, the bulk of the book focuses on 20th century and even on the second half of the 20th century. So, so it looks like I'm doing something completely different. I'm moving to robots and not clocks, and I'm moving from early modern Japan to modern Japan. But in fact, there are a lot of places where the two projects intersect. And the first one is, is really the... Um, just in terms of research, because when we start in, in the 19th century, people who were really, really important for automata making and humanoid automata making are the people who work with astronomers and people who create this wonderful box. So as I was doing research about clock making and um, astronomical clocks, I also encountered a lot of materials about automata making. 
The other uh, really important connection between two projects is that I basically ask a similar kind of question. Because in the book about uh, clocks and timekeeping, I ask, we have this, this abstract notion of time, but what is it that helps us understand what time is? What are the material anchors that we use in order to create our own concept of time and time measurement? And I do something very, very similar with automata um, because humanoid automata is based on their creator's idea of what humanity is. So I ask how similarly, how humanoid automata manifest the creator's ideas of humanity? What are the kind of hierarchies that when an engineer or an automata maker wanted to recreate a human-like characteristic in their device, how did they construct the hierarchy of attributes, of characteristic, human characteristics, which they thought that the most important that they needed to put in a machine to make this machine look human? So in this sense, these projects are really, really, first of all, the, the current project is, 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 going, is growing out of the research that I've done in, uh, in the book on the clocks, but it's also conceptually recreates the similar set of questions and identifies similar set of problems and also logically looks at the automata as a kind of text, historical text that I can analyze in order to arrive at the engineer's conceptions of humanity and uh, human likeness. Well, that sounds amazing too, Yulia. So let's make a date to talk about that when that book is out, um, which also sounds fascinating. (laughs) And in the meantime, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me about um, your book today. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much for talking to me and for all of your insightful questions. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks so much for joining us and come back and check us out again next time.